This episode is brought to you by Bent Pixels, the premier technology provider for the world's leading video networks and next-generation media companies. The Bent Pixels platform provides back-office network administration tools to facilitate partner onboarding, network intelligence, and payments. The company also provides digital rights management solutions for content claiming and anti-piracy on YouTube. There's a reason four of the top five MCNs and dozens more across five continents trust Bent Pixels. You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. I'm your host, James Creech, and today we're delighted to have Alejandro Barrado, co-founder and CEO of Fav Network. Alejandro hails from Buenos Aires, Argentina, but he and I are recording this episode today in New York at the StreamCon conference. Alejandro, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, my pleasure. So I want to take a step back to the beginning of your career and talk about, you know, first you got started in management consulting. How did that prepare you for a career now in online video? Well, I think management consulting prepared me for almost any kind of career because it's a very generalist job track, if you can call it that. You know, usually what's more generalist is careers in management consulting and in investment banking. Basically, you get to see a lot of industries within the same job, you know, and you get to see a lot of industries in a very short period of time. So I was lucky enough when I joined McKinsey, I was 23, 24, and I joined McKinsey at the, at the Buenos Aires office one year before everything in Buenos Aires collapsed through currency devaluations and everything. And I was lucky to get an engagement in Los Angeles that was basically a merger of two studios. So that helped me to start, you know, falling in love with the entertainment industry as, a, as an industry, as a category. I was a movie lover. I was a TV lover. But I get to see the, the business there. So from that point on, everything I did, I always tried to do stuff that combines the things that I love. And the three things that I love is basically finance, technology, and entertainment. So I spend a lot of a good deal of, of my life doing some of all of those things. So eventually you founded your own consulting business and then later went on to start Post and is it BIM? The consulting business, before, after after McKinsey, what I did is I did my MBA. I stayed in Los Angeles. I never sure. got back to, to Buenos Aires. I did my MBA at UCLA. And then I had around eight years doing alternative asset management. First at a hedge fund based out of Buenos Aires, but we were doing mostly uh, all, all Latin American investments. Okay. Some of them tech-related, some of them entertainment-related, but I was mostly doing nerd, quant, finance stuff, which <laughs> I also like. So one area of things you liked, maybe two, if you yeah. were working on finance, uh, finance investments for uh, entertainment companies, but it didn't necessarily cover all three. Yeah, that's right. So I got bored. After four years, I co-founded a small VC firm in Argentina with two other partners. We invested in 17 projects. We had three exits. We have around 10 companies dying, and we still have three, four in the portfolio, which is, you know, the typical outcome yeah. in, a, in a VC portfolio. Sure. Once I finished that, I spent around two and a half years doing independent gigs for tech companies, basically fundraisings and M&As. One of the fundraisings was for Post & Bill, which is a, a company I, I helped I to raise funds and co-found as, as an advisor. And what did Post & Bill focus on? Post and Beam is basically a marketplace for the architecture, engineering, and construction industries. The best way to explain it, it's Behance meets LinkedIn, but for that, for the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. We learned with my Seth, my co-founder, that LinkedIn is great for maybe people like me to present myself. I just have a curriculum and a resume, and that's it. But if you're a guy that you're doing visual stuff, call it graphic designer, CAD modeler, 
being modeler, the way you to present yeah. yourself is through your jobs. Yeah, so through, a portfolio, not, not through a portfolio, not so much through just So that's what yeah. we didn't invent anything. Behance uh-huh. saw that early on, but they were focusing mostly on, on Photoshop artists, uh, which is a huge Smart. community, and they end up selling for a, a lot of money to Adobe. But we, we thought that we, we had a, a good niche on that segment, particularly on, on countries that BIM is adopted. Uh, BIM is, I'm not sure if you know, but BIM is business information modeling. It's like the new standard for CAD modeling. So, and was that mostly in Latin America? No, or worldwide? It's US. Okay. BIM is, right now, is enforced. If you build a building, you need the BIM models before getting approval from the city of the county. It's enforced in the US. In Germany and in Japan, the only three countries, which is three big markets enough, yeah. you know, to focus. And UK is following with the same, same idea. Approach, yeah. Yeah, okay. same so you've been on both sides of the table. Now you've worked as management consultant, you've been an advisor, a founder of many businesses. Now you're in an operational role. Did you always think of yourself as an entrepreneur or no, how did you never, find yourself on never. this path? I always liked to do many things. So that, that's why I think that I first, you know, said, okay, I need to do consulting because that's the only way. I could focus like on different industries and different projects every two months. And what what happened to me is that everything I did was something that was that allowed me to focus on on, on different things or to do different things on different roles. So this I would say that my, my role as CEO of Fab is, is my first time as a in an operational role and my first time, you know, doing just one thing, which, which is being CEO. Which yeah. is not that's easy a full time job. <laughs> it's, it's not easy at all, you know, I'm doing but the, the good thing is that I'm doing things I've never done before, like people management, HR, recruiting, hiring, maintaining good talent, fundraising. I did before, but always for third parties. So doing fundraising for for once for for myself was a new one. And then getting out there, you know, I'm, I'm the face of the company. So I'm going to events, PR. It helped me a lot on my oral. Uh, my verbal, you know, communication capabilities, uh, especially in English, since I'm, I'm Spanish-speaking native. I'm, I mean, so far, I'm enjoying it. And for those of you who missed it, Alejandro had an incredible panel today at StreamCon, so I can see that you're you. you're jumping into the role with great excitement. It's great. Thanks. You mentioned it's your first time being a leader and kind of a manager directly of people, which is a big part of the CEO job. How has the learning curve been stepping into that new role? Well, the learning curve has been steep. <laughs> the thing with Fab and the, our company is that we always say that there are like three business models in one, you know, because it's like a production company. Sure. So you end up recruiting production people, people that come from TV, from uh, picture studios, from production companies, from content creators, which is a very different animal from the people I used to interact with. Usually, especially in Latin America, there's people that is, is very used to work with unions. It's a very unionized segment in, in terms of employees. So you have your issues there in terms of with the unions and everything. I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a lot to, especially to listen. Sometimes my first approach towards people was, okay, I need this person to do this job. If the person was not performing well, instead of, you know, pivoting his role or her role or understanding what her, her or his core capabilities are for the firm, I was, you know, trying to push harder to, to do what I wanted to do in that role, which can lead to people leaving the company. Yeah. Now I try to understand quickly if the, the fit, you know, job description and capabilities of the, of the person we recruited is moving and forward smoothly. And, and if not, you know, we had like a couple of successful pivots in terms of responsibilities within the firm that they're 
doing exceptionally well. So-so to exceptionally well. I think it's a matter of hearing more and trying to, to, to not get married with your ideas of why you, what you need people to do without asking them. What is the hardest part of starting your own company? For me, the hardest part of starting my own company was the fact that I couldn't diversify. And I'm used to diversifying, you know. Because one thing, if you're an employee at a traditional job, that's it, okay. You're working there and, and probably you don't have much upside, but you don't have downside either. You're trying to get, you know, the, the best of you there. And, and if not, you move to another company. But the thing is that since I work a lot in asset management, in, in hedge funds and then in venture capital and also in consulting, what you end up doing there is, is diversifying in, in, in different roads in, in the company. Even at some point, I had like two, three different jobs, part-time jobs. So I, I was comfortable with that situation. Say, okay, this moves slower than expected. I don't care. I can wait. This explodes in the middle of the air, you know, and okay, I have these two other gigs going on. And so here I'm full speed, you know, against the wall. We raise funds. We are executing well, or I think we are executing well. We are full speed ahead, making revenue, but probably we're going to raise more money if we don't get acquired in the meantime. So there, there are a lot of uncertainties, which I, I don't mind. But the thing is that there is no plan B in terms of diversification. So, But that's for me because I was used to that, you know. If you talk with a typical entrepreneur that I, he was, I don't know, 24, 21, 22, 23 years old and he only did new companies, like a serial entrepreneur, it's business as usual. Though it sounds like with the three parts of your business, you know, there's the uh, brand content production side, there's the MCN component, and then there's a third piece. The third piece is a third piece that we realized we, we had to have it when we started the company. Yeah, I mean, initially we were supposed to be like an MCN, mm -hmm. and then we produce our own content for YouTube and other digital platforms. Early on, we realized, talking with the media companies in Latin America, some of them locals, but some of them subsidiaries of big media companies in Europe and, and, and the US that they have no clue about what to do with YouTube, particularly with YouTube, but then Snapchat, then Instagram, Video, then Facebook, Twitter, Amplify, you name it. So those, these guys, they were using, you know, the best, best case, they were using YouTube as another social network, which is kind of shaky. Or they were that's only using, one part of YouTube, that's right? It's also part. a search yeah. engine, it's also a video platform, so that's right. you help brands understand it. So these guys, and some of them, they were also using it to drive traffic to their authenticated websites and their authenticated apps. And the problem with these guys is that the audience that you already have in your authenticated apps and websites, it's audience that probably has cable or DirecTV at, at their homes. But you need to, how, how do you get the other guys? You know, kids like mine, that he has six years old, he watches and loves uh, SpongeBob, but he doesn't care and he doesn't know that SpongeBob is tied to Nickelodeon. Yeah, no the destination is dead. The, the concept of destination in cable, like Simpsons, Fox. SpongeBob, Nickelodeon, MTV, and uh, South Park, for example. That connection between uh, show and channel, it's dead. Now it's only show. And, and we expect the shows it, to be everywhere. Yeah, and if it's on YouTube, it's on YouTube. It's Netflix, great. And if I download the app of SpongeBob, it's the app of SpongeBob. I mean, that audience will never make the crossover again to linear. You know, when my kid grows up and has 20 years old, he won't install Comcast or DirecTV at home. He will continue doing the same or, or whatever works in 18 years from now in digital media. So, and, and another thing that they are doing, some of them very well and some of them not so well, especially in Latin America, is the content claiming. 
rights management. There is a lot of pirated content, especially YouTube. YouTube made a great progress on developing and improving the content ID algorithm, which is, right now it's a beautiful thing. It's great. It's great, but they're, they're not using it well. They need to upload long form to claim the content uh, with YouTube. Then they need to they need to do IP blocking because they may have rights on, on different countries. Or, for example, we, we are working a lot with Viacom Latin America. And we are developing their channels for Nickelodeon and TV and Comedy Central. And we are getting content claims and knockdowns from Viacom International. And we are Viacom Latin America. Legal department versus legal department. So the department. two aren't yeah. talking to one another? They, they wow. never talk. You know? So wow. they say, okay, you, you want to take down South Park because I, I uploaded like a short form snippet from South Park in Spanish or in Portuguese. But I, Viacom Latin America, have the right to do it. I have the right to, for linear, for apps, for Netflix, and for YouTube. So what's, what the problem is maybe Viacom USA or Viacom Canada, when they uploaded the long form, they uploaded for global. And they don't have global, they have US. For Latin America, they sold internally to the subsidiary. So they have a mess there, which is, I mean, it's understandable. And if you go to Fox, to Turner, it's the same thing. The, the, you know, the big cable guys. We saw a, a great opportunity there, and it was also an opportunity to monetize early on, create some short-term revenue, which is not super scalable. You're not going to have a million deals like this, but provides us extra cash to get more, you know, lives, months of cash. Well, that and, and it builds the relationships that with people who could potentially be advertisers and want to buy against yeah, your content in the future. Or acquirers. So, yeah, for sure. Smart. Yeah. So to recap, Fav has an MCN, does original production and programming for the next generation of Latin American uh, viewers, and then is also servicing brands and media companies to help them understand the video landscape, whether that's rights management, audience growth, or managing content. That's right. And what does the future hold for FAV? Well, the future right now is execution and, and scale. We need to gain scale. We started in January, February, producing our own content. We moved to our studio. We have like a 600 square meter studio in, down in Buenos Aires. We open, we're opening a, a second production facility in El Salvador, which one of our main investors is there. And we are gaining scale on our, our own channels. And we need to gain scale on, on, on the network side of the business, of course, which is a big challenge for two things. One is because, I mean, affiliating channels in Argentina, it's easy because we're there. We have the studio. It's very easy for us to provide value added to the YouTubers. Not only, okay, give me 30% of your revenue. I'm going to, in theory, increase your traffic. I'm going to, in theory, sell you more pre-rolls and more branded content, and that's it. But for a Colombian channel or a Peruvian channel or a Mexican channel, we don't have the studio there. So we need to, to add more value. And what we're doing is there is to develop sales capabilities locally for these guys, you know, because one thing we, we noticed early on is that we are late on the MCN game globally, not in Latin America. In Latin America, we're the first ones. But globally, we are late. And what that means is that many channels, especially the head and the torso channels in Latin America, they had a very bad experience with MCNs already, particularly from the U.S. Many of these channels, they, they have been working with Me Too, they have been working with Fullskin, they, they work with Style the Broadband TV, Awesomeness, Makers, all, all sure. of them. And the common denominator is they took me, I don't know, 50, 40, 30, 10, 5, whatever. And they didn't do anything and they, You know, my traffic increased, but I'm not sure if it increased because of them or because I did a good job or 
or both. I never got a branded deal from these guys or a, a pre-roll, you know, with, with a premium CPM. And it's, it's not that they didn't manage to get that because they're evil, you know, these MCNs. It's because they don't have local people. We're friends with all of them. We, we don't consider competitors because we can do things together. And the good thing is that usually the typical MCM affiliation contract usually carries no exclusivity. So it's a revenue sharing on AdSense. But if, for example, I, I approach a branded content deal to a talent that is working with Me Too, he can do it. And Me Too doesn't see a, a dime on that. And, and they don't care because if, if, if the branded deal is, is brought by, by the creator, it's all his and then the, the other party that's bringing the deal. And it's happening also to our creators. If someone, you know, it's maker, happened with Me Too, for example, did a, a campaign with one of our creators. And, and for us, it was great because we got the views. We didn't get the, the money on the, on, the, on the deal. I think it's win-win for everyone. Now, you mentioned that a lot of Latin American creators have had a bad experience with American MCNs. Is it because they don't understand the market or that they're just stretched too thin and, you know, they're trying to manage 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 channels think, all over the world? I think it's a matter of focus. Yeah. Because, I mean, even if you don't know it, I mean... Come on, these guys are not stupid. Makers, full cream. I mean, they're, they're they're awesome. So these guys, I mean, they can build a sales force in Latin America. They can do it wrong. Yeah, they can do it wrong. You can correct. You can iterate. But it's, yeah, it's I mean, you you can do it. I mean, Facebook did it. Facebook started selling in Latin America uh, through sales representations, like with companies like IMS. You know, in Miami, they say, okay, sell my inventory in Latin America because you know they say Latin America, I don't care. When they started caring, because first it was two million bucks, then ten, then twenty, then two hundred million bucks. Okay. I care. No, I start paying Open office in yeah. Buenos Aires, one in Sao Paulo. LinkedIn did the same. Twitter did the same. Snapchat is doing the same, opening two offices now in Latin America. So it's a matter of focus. Of course, Snapchat still has room to grow and to produce revenues in the U.S. So you know, why would you go somewhere else? Like us, for other countries, smaller countries in Latin America, we focus... Our focus is Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, and Argentina. It's not that we're not going to care about Peru or Chile, but there are smaller markets. So if, if, we need, if we have limited resources, we're going to first test and deploy what we need to deploy in the, on, the, on the key markets. You also touched on the importance of getting to scale. And there's been a bit of a debate about this, especially in the U.S. MCN space, because for such a long time, it was all about aggregation, right? Going out, rolling up so many channels, getting to the scale numbers faster than the competitors. Now, the pendulum seems to have swung the other direction because, I don't know, maybe much of the market has been partnered or because scale has been achieved. But why is scale so important? And is scale essential or can a boutique MCN also be successful? I think in the U.S. you can, you can I would say, um, you can focus on a niche and get and, and survive, you know, like Stylehold did, like, like the guys at Tastemate are doing with, with, with an awesome company, an awesome app. I think Latin America as a market, it's very risky to do that, you know. It's a, I think Latin America is a, is a vertical in itself, like a genre, or the Latino content, if you put U.S. Hispanics as well. Scale, I think it's important for two things. One is because it allows you to cross-promote traffic within channels, and particularly for us, if we get a lot of scale on the network, even if it's with a crappy revenue, uh, average revenue sharing agreement, we end up having around 10-20% of that which is a very low gross margin, that traffic helps us to push our own content traffic, you know, and doing collaborations and promoting between channels, you know, and pushing our channels, which is where we control 100% of the revenue, the IP, all the branded content deals. That's why I think it's important in terms of scale. And usually when you affiliate like a super long tail channel, for those channels, if you don't have scale, it's the only value added you can add them. I mean, I have like, 
I don't know, 200 channels uh, that they, they generate, I don't know, 100 million views in revenues, 100 million views per month. And then if I affiliate 1,000 channels that they do, I don't know, 1,000 views per month, and they're happy with it, but they're super locked in, the only way I have to give them traffic is to understand their demographics and match the demographics of the bigger channels. And, and then on the suggested videos or on the end cards of the videos, I cross-promote those channels or those groups of channels. And then the other thing about scale is that scale is eyeballs, you know, and in, in, in the media industry, everything gets measured by rating, CPR, eyeballs. M&A deals are being done and are being measured on using that metric as well, you know? They call it subscribers or call it viewership, views, watch or time. Watch. Yeah, the vanity metrics, so to speak. But that's on the network side. But then on the production side, scale is super important for us because we're producing very cost-efficiently. Our production cost per minute is between 5 and 50 bucks per minute, wow. which is super low. Some MCNs are producing Maker, for example, is producing, before getting acquired by Disney, they were producing between 1,000 and 3,000 per minute. Of course, in the U.S., other costs, unions. So the only way to achieve those costs is if you have scale on your own production facility. You know, you, you have two to three shifts per day, you produce one month or two months worth of content for every channel, every time a talent comes to the studio and spends five hours there, we, we, we make sure he produces anywhere between six to 10, 12 videos in order to optimize our resources, their time, and have the ability to have more channels, you know. Otherwise, the only way to grow in term, on own channels is to buy another building, you know. That's it your physical you know, roof in terms of, of production capability. One of the key things I took away from your panel today was, you know, maybe generations ago, the Latin American market was very fragmented, right? There were differences in viewership, there were differences in language. And today, as a result of digital, it seems that those barriers are being broken down, that people will watch Chilean content or yeah. content from El Salvador yeah. that previously would not have been relevant to them yeah. or even understandable by them. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm not a TV guy, but my co-founders are coming from two of them from the TV world. What they always say is that 10 or 20 years ago, if you were Fox or Turner or, or any cable operator that were, you were selling content globally and, of course, regionally in Latin America, you would never thought that a Chilean telenovela would run in Colombia or in Mexico and, and go well, or a Brazilian telenovela in Argentina. Usually you, there were some stereotypes in which everyone knew that Colombian and Mexican telenovelas did well everywhere in Latin America, but not vice versa. In YouTube, everything changed, and, and, and in, in general, in digital video, because accent is no longer an issue. What's an issue now is authenticity and, and, and you know having the connection between the audience and the talent. So the, the biggest talent in Latin America is a Chilean guy called Soy Germán, which is sort, it's hilarious. Sort of, he's a PewDiePie in Latin yeah. America. He first started doing video blogging, and then he moved to gaming, so now he has two channels. He's huge. He's like 17 in the world and number one in Latin America. So he has an exclusive deal with, I think, Machinima and with YouTube. And he's Chilean. He speaks 100% Chilean, you know. He doesn't use... The, the difference is that what they don't use is slang. So you speak with your accent, but you don't use slang. That's what... That doesn't travel well. So as long as you don't use slang, but you speak, you know, with Argentinian accent, with Mexican accent, with Spanglish, like any you know, Latino or like I speak English, like half Spanish, half English, uh, it works. And brands at first, where it was kind of shocking to them, but now they understand that these guys, they have the audience, 
they have the demographics that they're interested in, in, in pushing their products into and so I think it should be a no-brainer for them. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the personal side of Alejandro. I know you love to play squash. You're a big fan yes. of the F1 and I hear you like to ride motorcycles. It's also a passion of mine. I run, yeah, but not motorcycles. I'm, I'm a baseball fan. Squash is my favorite sport. I, I became a fan when I was a 15, 16 years old and never quit playing. And Formula One, it's basically, if you're an Argentinian, you, you like soccer and you like probably Formula One. We have a very good drivers in the past, not, not so much now, but in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was a, we have one of the biggest drivers of all times and every I think every Argentinian likes you know driving as a sport. What else do you like to do for fun? For fun I like to I mean I love I'm a movie movie nerd. I mean I, I love movies. I love entertainment as a, a category as an, as an industry. I love music. I play piano since I was a kid. I started playing piano when I was five. What styles? Now I, I like to play like Latin Latin American music mm-hmm. like mostly mambo, salsa, Central American music, and jazz. I grew up playing jazz piano as well, and, yeah. and played a little bit of Latin jazz, which is very difficult. The syncopation that's, that's of the timing is... That one. I love yeah. Latin jazz. My problem with Latin jazz is that with jazz in general, you need to be very good at improvisation, which I'm not. I'm, I'm more of... I'm very good at reading on the, on, the, on the professional side of music, so if you give me a music script, I, I started for two weeks and I played perfectly, but if I need to play a little bit with the piano, like any professional musician... I'm, I'm dead meat there. So. But it's, we are it's quite the hobby. opposite. I loved the improvisational piece. Yeah, yeah. it's more a hobby rather than a I see. something that and it's a, you know something that I I disconnect myself from the world. You mm-hmm. know, I grab the headphones, the my keyboard, and I, I very good. It. Well, if you ever start a uh, Latin jazz uh, YouTube channel, I'll subscribe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, in Fab, we I, I mean I personally try to affiliate. There are a lot of channels on how to play the guitar, how to play the piano. And we are we are affiliating most of them. You know, we have a you know channels that I, I feel some kind of bond with them. You yeah, know? you're passionate about the content, uh, and also passionate about finding deals for them. You know, mm-hmm. like product reviews and branded, branded deals. Yeah. Uh, I, I usually have like a, a preference there. What books have you read recently that you just couldn't put down? Well, I recently read an old one, but I read it for the second time, which I love. Which is a book that is called Gedel Escher Bach, which talks about Gedel is a mathematician. Oh. Escher is the painter, you know, the painter that painted infinite paintings, you know, Escher? Mm-hmm. And Bach is Bach, of course. And this book tells, uh, talks about how Bach music is similar to the mathematic really? derivations wow. of Gödel and the paintings of Escher. That sounds fascinating. Like every, every, it's a very nerdy book. If you, it's not a book that you read from A to Zeta. So you, you just grab a chapter and you, you try to understand it. But I love that book. Yeah. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's from a German author called Douglas Hofstadter, and it's a big one. And then another one that I love that I read recently, even though it came three or four years ago, is the Steve Jobs one, of mm. course. I'm a big... You're going to see the movie? Uh, I, I, saw, I saw the movie, but not uh, the last did you, one. Did you wear your turtleneck? Eh? No, did you wear yeah, your no, turtleneck no, and go no, see the turtleneck. <laughs> yes. It was summer, so... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. A little too warm for that. <laughs> yeah. But usually, I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, I, if, if I have spare time to watch a movie or read okay. on, on, on the stuff that I love, yeah. rather than, than, than grabbing a book. So what's, a, what's one of your favorite movies you've seen recently? Favorite movie recently, uh, The Gambler. Uh, Very well done. Uh, Wahlberg. Love it. I love Mark Wahlberg, so it's an entourage movie, of course. Had you seen the original? The Gambler, the original, no. Ah, okay. No. It's very different stylistically. And, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's Michael Caine or no? Or uh, I'm not sure. 
or it's an Italian guy. I don't remember. It's been okay. so long since you know, it's an old movie, but very, very good as well. Then I said I saw the documentary on Amy Winehouse. Mm. Loved it. Terrible. There were a lot of things that I, I didn't know about her. But I, I, I basically watch everything, you know, from from straight comedy to disconnect. Now I'm watching a lot of kids stuff. I would imagine <laughs> animation and everything, which is great. You know, I mean, if you if you look at the, the biggest animation pictures of the last decade, they're both done, you know, for to attract kids, but also adults like me. So. If you, you see, you know, the last uh, movie from Pixar, what was the name in English? What's the name in Spanish? Intensamente, which is the... Inside Out was Inside the Out, movie, that's yeah. right. Inside Out. I mean, it's, it's not a kid's movie, you know. It's, it's super intelligent, well done. The, the only kid-related thing there is that it's animation. But, you know, your kid sees a movie and you see another movie. And it's masterfully done when Pixar does it and they're able to speak to two different audiences yeah. that way. One of the questions I ask everyone on the podcast, which might not be as directly relevant to you, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is... If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? And I know you just started Vav earlier this year, but you know, if you were doing it again on today, today's date, what would you do? I think I would do exactly what I'm doing, but I would focus early on on developing IP technology IP on top of, of you know building the inventory and creating content. I think there is a lot of space still in the digital video industry to develop tools to you know to help creators and to help MCNs and to help distribution platforms to optimize how to handle video inventory, how to handle multiple uploads, how to monetize better monetization on digital video. Right now, it's at it's on, on the early stages. It's, it's, I mean, leave YouTube outside and, and AdSense. Right now, you know there is a myriad of, of, of proprietary players. There are a couple of ad exchanges that are appearing that are focused solely on on, on video inventory. But programmatic, it's it's still on its early it's days. Very early, and I think there is a. If you have enough cash, it's not a a line of business that you can bootstrap or you can do a, an awesome execution on, on on a seed round. But I think there are a lot of opportunities if you have the cash. Well, we could talk all day about uh, technology for the online yeah. video space because that's you know, you know of course you know. my passion. But no, I'm, I'm, that's very good to hear. I, I, no one else has really touched on that so specifically. So that's great. Okay. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the video ecosystem, or maybe more specifically about uh, video in Latin America, what are you what are you going to say in the future? I think video in Latin America. One, one thing that it's uh, obvious now because the consumption is there is that of, of, I mean 60% of YouTube in our network and in, in YouTube in Latin America in general 60% of the consumption is being done on mobile devices mostly smartphones or of course some tablets and I think we we will reach a point when mobile advertising started five or six years ago you only had like the same things that you have on display, banners, pre-rolls and that stuff and it was very but clunky. it was not optimized yeah. for, for mobile then came Rich Media Mobile which you have ads that interact with you, know, you, with the gyroscope, with the GPS, with your camera. I think we're going to start to see a lot of content developed that interacts with the technical capabilities of your smartphone in, in the next few years. Call it 360 videos, interactions with selfies, uh, geolocalization, and, 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 and watching different kinds of content of different outcomes, like choose your own adventure depending on your location. And the same with advertisements on videos. That's one thing that it's going to kick in, I think, in the future uh, to make 
advertisement more attractive. Maybe we call it like rich media for video or something like that. One thing that has to happen is that programmatic has to get better for online video. It needs to get better. I mean, right now, fill rates, I know in the U.S., it's probably between 10 and 20 percent. It's hard to know. YouTube doesn't publish their fill rate figures, but, you know, we've estimated them between 30 and 40 percent at times, but it depends yeah. on who the content owner is, who the publisher is. There's a lot of factors. In Latin America, they are below 10%. I'm sure they're very much lower. CPM is terrible. So programmatic has to improve their game to improve the effective CPMs on on, on digital video. But is programmatic enough? Because the supply of video content is dramatically exceeding the demand. And it seems like that imbalance is growing larger every day, not not that we're going to see equilibrium anytime soon. It depends on how much money, how much advertising dollars will will end up going to, to mobile video. That's true. To, to video, to digital video in general. But if, I mean, if it continues to widen, you're right. Very good predictions. We'll look out for that. Last question. What recommendations or advice do you have for the people listening? Regarding? Anything. Whether it's professional, personal tips, words that you live your life by, any advice you want to share? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say anything new here, but 80% of what I did in my life, I did stuff that I enjoy doing and I, and I love doing. And at the minute I, I stopped enjoying doing it, I quit. You know, I, I left, I started something new. So don't spend any any additional minute of your life doing something that is not making a use of your brain and your time and your contacts. Whenever you start something new as, as an entrepreneur, as a co-founder, you need to choose very wisely your your co-founder you know it's not a matter of just getting along and being friends you need to think about the the capabilities of the rest of your co-founders and and how you complement each other and how you you know you know you don't you do not overlap in terms of responsibilities and qualifications otherwise you will, you will end up you know in a it's not a, a perfect thing to find i mean it's impossible to find you know a co-founder that's completely complementary and not overlapping but the more overlapping, the more iterations and the more discussions you have on or double checks on things that you need to have speed and execution. And especially in startups and startups related to internet and to digital video, sometimes it's more important to do things and to make mistakes and to iterate quickly and learn uh, rather than think for months on, on what you need to do and how to do it. So it's uh, the, the cost of getting it wrong is it's it's much less than, than you know spending eight months trying to do something than launching it late. Might as well get it done and learn from that. Great advice. And where can people find out more about you and more about Fav Network? Well, we Fav Network, we have a website which basically explains what we're doing and where we yeah. explain what kind of value proposition we have for YouTubers and for creators in, in Latin America and in the US. So you can go to the website, you can go to our main channel in YouTube where we have all our channels linked there. And about myself, I'm basically I'm a Twitter guy. So I spend most of my, my social interactions in Twitter. Uh, strangely enough, I never had Facebook. Oh, really? I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I'm a Twitter fan, binary. So, and what is your handle? A-B-U-R-A-T-O. Basically, A-B-U-R-A-T-O everywhere. On my email, on my Skype, on my Twitter account. Well, Alejandro, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for covering the time during the conference and uh, for being on the show. Good Thank time. you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another episode of All Things Video.